Recently, I've been thinking a lot about the beliefs I have around writing, the impact those beliefs have on me and my work, what impact they have on others and their work, and if any of them are accurate, or if I've just bought into a bunch of myths. For example, just what does it take to be a writer? Is it something you're born with? An incredible talent passed down through the genes or gifted from the divine? Or is it something you can learn? And if you can learn it, then are there better places to learn and better qualifications you can attain to become an even better writer? I'm Matt Hampton, and this week on Confessions of a Working Writer, we're looking at the beliefs around natural talent, qualifications, and asking ourselves the question, can anyone really be a writer? tells a joke where she's at a party and a brain surgeon approaches her. They make small talk and eventually their professions come up. The brain surgeon thinks it's wonderful that Atwood is a writer and says he's always wanted to be a writer. When I retire, I had to have the time. I'm going to be a writer, says the brain surgeon. That's interesting, says Atwood. When I retire, I'm going to be a brain surgeon. What makes a writer? Some people will tell you that writing, like all arts, is a matter of natural talent. They will say that some people are just born with the genetic gift for writing, much, much as a brilliant musician is born to the guitar. Others will say you need to learn. And the, the better the place you learn, the greater the, uh, the greater the writers you rub elbows with, the more ability will rub off on you. These are the priests of the postnomials who will wave titles, awards, and achievements at you like war flags so you know you're not at their level. Some people even tell you that anyone can be a writer. Just sit down and do the thing. No muss, no fuss, and nothing special. But who's right? Throughout my decades of writing, I have at times held all of these beliefs to some degree. I've been obsessed with natural talent and probably a bit too proud of my own. I've gone out and sought to study at the feet of the masters, whoever the hell they are. And yes, I've even been to the place where I believed that anyone could write and there was nothing special about it at all. So which belief do I hold now? Who do I think is right? Honestly, I don't know. And that's why I'm exploring these beliefs. Maybe one of them's right, maybe none of them are. But one thing is for certain. We need to sit down and ask some questions before we just stumble into believing things. So let's start with the low-hanging fruit on this one. Natural talent. Now, when I was younger, a teenager just really getting serious about writing is my dream profession, someone made a tragic mistake. One of my high school teachers told me I was talented. I assume it was to boost my languishing self-esteem. It worked just a bit too well. From that moment forward, you could offer me very little criticism about anything that came out of my pen. This was a tragic state of affairs that continued until I went to undergrad and started writing in a collegiate environment with professors who were less than impressed with my high school achievements. The talent issue is one that really does hit writers quite effectively. We talk a lot about it. Artists are born. There's a gift. It's passed on to you. But where does this come from? Well, we could start by talking about the societal concept of prodigies. 
We love the story of the prodigy. You know how these goes. A child is born with amazing powers. These natural gifts make them superior artists, writers, and musicians. They are automatically better than anyone else because of an innate amount of genetically inherited talent. But here's the thing. There's very little compelling evidence for the existence of prodigies. Take Mozart, history's most famous prodigy. Mozart was playing music proficiently, depending on who you read, at four. He was composing at five. Pieces of Mozart's legend are found throughout popular history and self-improvement literature. He is the quintessential proof of the prodigy. Except he isn't. So inner psychologist Kay Anders Erickson, an expert in the field of human performance. Erickson made a study of human beings in all disciplines, the very best performers, and actually found little to support the idea of natural talent. In the case of Mozart, he found that much of his story is exaggerated. Yes, he played short pieces on the harpsichord at four, but he had practiced well before that age. When we are young, we learn at an incredible rate. No one is as competent a learner as a small child. The human brain becomes less sponge and absorbs all of the details that are provided to it. Teach a child to play music or a language at two, for example, and they will outperform many adults by four if they have any interest in the subject. Oh, and about those compositions? Yes, he composed. But the things you know him for, the compositions that you think of as the essential Mozart, he didn't write those until he was 15. Ten years later. Now, Mozart's talent is more a matter of practice and passion than really natural ability. See, he still put in the effort. He still spent time playing the harpsichord and learning music. He just started earlier than most people do. This is something similar to be similar seen in elite athletes. Certain elite martial artists may begin their training when they're around the age of two. The earlier you start a skill, the easier it is for a child to pick up. But more on that later. Prodigies are really more myth than truth. We like to picture the natural prodigy because as human beings, we're wired to find things to worship. It's something that keeps us centered. It's something that keeps humanity unified and allows us to work together as a group towards a common goal. This is why religion, spirituality, and indeed iconoclastic individuals, good or bad, like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, become figures of such renown. We want to worship things. Prodigies are just another thing that we can definitively worship. Look, prodigies sound good, and it's easier to believe talent is a genetic gift than something within our control that needs to be practiced. But the truth about talent is that, well, everyone has it. We like to think of talent as something gifted to us. That's why prodigy myths make so much sense. If talent is a special magic, then either we have it or we don't. Our imposter syndrome loves it because that gives us a reason to doubt and quit. Gatekeepers love it because they can use this idea to decide who is worthy of the title writer. But the definition's flawed. What if talent isn't really a gift, but instead is the product of a simple equation? What if passion plus practice equals talent? Consider basketball legend and my favorite player of all time, as well as a childhood role model, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who, until recently, held the NBA all-time career scoring record for most of my natural life. By his own admission, Jabbar wasn't naturally gifted at basketball. He couldn't dribble. He wasn't particularly good at shooting. He was clumsy and awkward. Oh, he was tall, but that's where his gift for the game ended when he started. It was incredible coaching, dedication on his part, and disciplined practice that led to his skills on the court. 
Now, those skills would develop slower in high school, but eventually would go on to lead to three college championships at UCLA in three years, as well as six NBA titles and the accompanying MVP awards to go with them. He was part of the legendary Lakers dynasty, a basketball player who to this day has impact on the sport and is seen as an icon. People who love the game of basketball even talk about him in the same breath as the greats like Michael Jordan and Wilt Chamberlain. He is definitively among the pantheon of basketball players, and I can't heap enough praise on him because he definitively is mine. He would leave a mark on this game that's still there today and will be there decades from now. The history of basketball will always have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's name attached to it. And to think, when he started, no one thought he could play for squat. Look, innate characteristics, they have an impact specifically on practice. But Matt, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was incredibly tall. He was seven foot two inches tall. That's something, right? Sure, there are always characteristics and circumstances that may help or hinder any endeavor. Someone who's very tall enjoys a kind of advantage in basketball. People who are born into wealth can afford to pursue their chosen endeavors a bit more freely. People with greater access to computers can practice coding more. But none of these characteristics or advantages guarantee anything. And for every tall person in basketball who did great, there are actually amazing short players like Spud Webb and Muggsy Bogues who played equally well. Legendary and nowhere near seven foot two. There are people who were born into wealth who were able to develop huge businesses and people who were born into poverty who did the same. There are people who learned how to code on computers because they were born and a laptop was put in their lap. And then there are people like Steve Wozniak, who had very limited computer time and taught himself coding by writing in a notebook. That's the thing. Sometimes our advantages are there. Sometimes they're obvious. They don't necessarily grant us anything specific except an extra chance or a leg up in practice. And sometimes they're harder to see. This is where I insert myself as an example. So I'm autistic. When I was a child, we didn't talk about the spectrum. So my difficulties were viewed as freakish behavior. And I ended up alone. A lot. Combine that with an abusive home and we get an isolated child confused by a world that makes no sense who lives in their head. Look, my retreats during the day were books, movies, and these little plays I used to stage with my action figures where like Luke Skywalker would try to save the world from Skeletor and Darth Vader was secretly running everything. This gave rise for me in me to a love for storytelling, specifically writing. That became a burning passion over the years and guided me through years of practice and learning. Over time, I would have my ups and my downs, my triumphs, and my absolute face plants. But without that early time of isolation, I probably never would have developed the imagination that I use now. Is every autistic person a writer? Well, no. Is every abused child an artist in the making? No. But for me, for me as a person, those bits and pieces would later shape what I became. I dreamed of creating the places I fled to, and I ran towards that dream. So, we've talked about talent, and if it's not talent, then it must be training and learning that makes a writer, correct? And if that's true, then there certainly must be better learning that that creates a better writer. Right? That's how it works. Look, on the opposite end of this argument, we have what I like to refer to as the alphabet soup crowd. Now, the term I use, alphabet soup comes from the postnomial letters people tend to put in their profiles and signatures to highlight their awards, titles, and degrees. For example, 
I have an MBA, so I could sign correspondence for my consulting business, Matt Hampton MBA. I don't, but I could. This isn't limited to just acronyms either. Alphabet supers are the ones who qualify themselves via titles. So when someone tells you they know writing better than you and cites their quote-unquote published author qualification, that's this. On this side of the argument, gatekeepers believe that qualifications make them real writers as opposed to amateurs. For them, certain qualifications and titles are better than others. Writers with MFAs, for example, are the real writers. Or maybe it's only people who've published books. Or it could be someone with an award. There's always a bar, and it's usually set by someone with no authority to set it. Does it mean anything? Well, no. It's just title and qualification stacking. All it achieves is, well, nothing. Sure, it alienates new writers and inflates the egos of the writers with the qualifications, but otherwise it's meaningless fluff. With Kindle Direct Publishing, anyone, literally anyone, can become a published author. That qualifier means next to nothing. Some awards are amazing. Some are pay-to-play scams. But winning or not winning an award doesn't really mean anything either. There are countless amazing writers that I love who didn't read and win tons of awards. To my knowledge, the writer Luis Sepulveda is not an award, a best-selling or award-winning writer in the United States, and yet his use of language is amazing. Hell, most of the writers I talk to don't even know who he is. Writers come from everywhere. Some of them have degrees, some of them don't. Some were bestsellers raking in the cash, and some weren't even appreciated in their own time, but would become legends posthumously. We refer to that as the Van Gogh moment, where in your own lifetime you're ignored, but when you're dead, you become far more important than anyone around you. Give me a writing qualification, and I can show you a great writer that proves your requirement is crap. In this case, the exception really does disprove the rule, because the rule is garbage. This leads us to kind of the ultimate question, right? Can anyone be a writer? It's a question of pros versus amateurs. You hear this language a lot on the internet. Pro writers. You need to have the pro. Gotta be a professional. Stephen Pressfield talks about this a lot. That the difference between a professional writer and an amateur and why we need to be professionals. So let's break that down for a minute because I find in this arena, especially when I dig, The definition of pro versus amateur is really muddy, murky, and honestly fairly biased to whoever's writing the self-help book or selling you the writing course. So for our purposes, we'll define a pro as this. A pro, professional, makes money for their work. Now, we tend to lift them up for this. Pros are the upper echelon, the next level we all aspire to be, because who wouldn't want to write their book and make a bunch of money from it? Now, an amateur is a little different. We tend to think this means rookie, but you might be surprised what the actual etymology of the word really is. See, the word amateur comes from French for the word meaning one who loves or lover. Essentially, the amateur is a person who writes, in this case, as a pastime because they love it. They're not trying to earn money from it. They do the entire thing for passion and love. I knew a man when I was a child who played basketball, and to my knowledge and the knowledge of everyone around, he was easily good enough to be a pro. I grew up around the University of Missouri, and he could beat the first-string players of the university in one-on-one games easily. I mean, we're talking slay. But he never tried to be a pro basketball player. In fact, to my knowledge, he was a lawyer. He never really wanted to be a basketball player. He only wanted to play for love of the game. This, by definition is an amateur.
So are we talking about professions or passions and pursuits away from a job? Because that matters. See, when we ask the question, can anyone be a writer? What you're really doing is somehow qualifying what makes a real writer. And that's crap. Let's look at professionals. Can anyone be a professional copywriter? Well, probably not. Believe it or not, writing successful copy is actually a skill and quite difficult. Lots of people give a shot at it and a whole lot fail. Can anyone be a screenwriter on a television show? Nope. Can't do that either. Can anyone be a hugely successful novelist raking in the millions like James Patterson? Also no, but frankly, not everyone should be. But can anyone write because they love writing? Can anyone write because they think writing is a way to communicate with the world? Hell yeah, they can. And they should. If they think if you think painting would be fun, you should go do that. If you want to make music by strumming strings and banging on pots, go for it. We put far too much pressure on what makes something and what makes something a profession rather than on what brings us joy. And frankly, it's a little sad. Let's return to our Matt Hampton example. I play taiko, Japanese drumming. I love playing those drums. I love my taiko family. The people in that group and the connection I feel when working on pieces together with them. <sighs> it's wonderful. I love the art form itself. I love the sound. I spend at least a good few minutes of every day listening to taiko pieces. Some that we're practicing for me to rehearse at home on my own, and others that, well, I'll probably never play, but they just sound, sound, they just sound so damn good. I love that connection. Hey, and I, with all modesty, am even pretty good at it. I'd say a little better than okay. But honestly, I will never be a taiko master. Nor do I want to be. Sorry, Tracy Sensei. But I do it because I love it and will keep doing it for the same reason. Even better, none of the players there with more experience or ability than I have put down my playing in any way. We're all on a journey together. We're all at various points in that journey, too. Honestly, when you're really creating anything, it's just best to keep your eyes on your work, appreciate the things others do, and let comparison live at the bottom of a deep, dark trench where it belongs. So thinking about that, pro and amateur, can anyone be a writer? Yeah, because writing is just a craft that anyone can practice, and, well, titles are bullshit. So where does that put us? Well, writing as an art form will always feel a bit like a Western B-movie. Low barriers to entry mean that anyone and everyone with a computer and access to the internet can, and very well might, take a stab at it. Programs like Kindle Direct Publishing mean that anyone willing to put in the work can publish a book, and AI is working very hard to make that workload extremely light. It's this environment that makes writers so eager to find ways to disqualify others. In a world where technology can make a published writer before lunch, other writers are going to want to make, make some distinctions. Honestly, you can't blame them. I've been writing for decades, and it never really gets easier. Hearing people talk about wanting to be a writer as though it's picking up canned peaches at the store, well, it kind of hurts. But here's the thing. Anyone who wants to be a writer can. It's the simple truth of this craft. The real beauty of writing is that it's so simple to start, but so tricky to, well, I'm not sure master's the right word. Look, finding your voice, your process, and learning to build a writer's relationship of awareness with the world around you are all things that you have to develop. No professor, online course, or certification can give those to you. They're developed over lots of time and lots of words on the page. 
not inherently passed down in your genetic code or blessed upon you by the divine hand of Rhytor, which, for the record, is my fun Masters of the Universe-esque way of naming my particular writing god. Maybe, instead of worrying about what makes us a real writer, we should spend more time writing our own stuff, and possibly reading the work of others, considering what intrigues us about their work, or even what we don't like about it. Most of all, we should just acknowledge that there isn't one path to becoming a writer. Take me, for instance. My path led from a childhood of undiagnosed autism and abuse to an undergrad writing program. Then to debt. Then to the military. Then to the world of tech. Then insurance. Then entrepreneurship. And don't forget to add in some suicide attempts, divorces, deep conversations, lost friends, trips to Disney World, and a few great sandwiches for good measure. Is that the path to being a writer? No. It's my path to being a writer. And the best anyone can do in this writing life is feel some kind of desire to write, then sit down and fumble through the process, making incremental improvements over the years. Nothing more, nothing less. Just living the life of a working writer always trying to tell a story. Perhaps the rest of us should just support that with the understanding that our craft is preserved not by some elite selection process, but by the truth that lots of people will try, some will walk away, a small few will make decent money at it, and many will just do it for love. God bless the amateurs. Because you know what you call an aspirant sitting at their desk, putting words on the page to tell a story, form a poem, or present some new idea to the world? You call them a writer. (laughs) 